It's May 20th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marsh Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. Today, the spotlight is on our guests as we'll jump right into conversations with a couple of special news guests. On the local front, Jonas Vibel will tell us about the upcoming Reboot the Commute app challenge. Then Jodica Vermani, Director of Technical Operations for the Wendy Schmidt Ocean Health X Prize, will tell us about the contest and its finalists. And finally, we'll explore the scientific potential of the 30 meter telescope. What is the legacy of Hawaii's astronomy and what will the TMT add to our knowledge of the universe? But before we get to our guests, let's start with a few items on the local tech calendar. Well, next Tuesday on the uh, Big Island brings the monthly West Hawaii Tech Pauhana. This network uh, networking mixer will host uh, hosted as always at the Nelha Gateway Visitor Center north of Kona. Uh, it's a casual potluck event, so bring your stories, business cards, and something to share. Organizer Rod Hinman will kick things off. And then um, the floor is open to talk story, and that's May 26th at 5 p.m. at Nelha. Next Thursday, May 28th, that is the Hawaii Venture Capital Association's annual State of the Venture Capital Industry Luncheon. That's where they will be discussing the latest developments, both locally and nationally. It'll be at the Plaza Club in downtown 904th Street Mall on the 20th floor. And, of course, that again is Thursday, May 28th at 11.30 a.m. For more information, go to hvca.org. And finally, the uh, following day, Friday on the 29th, brings the Spring 2015 Startup Paradise Demo Day. Companies from Blue Startups, Energy Accelerator, and Accelerate UH will be pitching and showing off their innovative ideas to change the world or at least launch a successful startup. It'll be held at the YWCA downtown from 3 to 6 p.m. on May 29th. And for more information, you can go to bluestartups.com slash events. And now joining us in the studio is Jodica Vermani, and she's with she's the Director of Technical Operations for the Wendy Schmidt Ocean Health X Prize. And we want to welcome you to the show. Thank you for uh, inviting me. So, um... Maybe what you can do, Jodica, is kind of first tell us, you know, there's so many X Prizes out there. Like we just recently talked to uh, students from Iolani and Kealakehe about the um, Lunar X Prize. So how many X Prizes are currently sort of, you know, in play? Oh, we have four X Prizes uh, currently active. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Lunar, Google Lunar X Prize mm-hmm. that you just mentioned. Um, the, Oce- the Wendy Schmidt Ocean Health X Prize that I'm currently working on. Uh, we also have the Global Learning X Prize and the Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize. So, hmm. any Star Trek fan out there should yeah. know what that one is. That sounds fascinating. So, the I love the idea of the X Prize, and in fact, we're gonna. That's sort of the theme of our news segment when um, Jonas is going to talk to us about an app challenge as well. But it's using contests. It's using using competition and, of course, prize funds and glory to motivate advancement and innovation in a specific area. So uh, what is the history of the Wendy Schmidt Ocean Health X Prize? Um, We're actually uh, approaching the end of that, but it's been uh, going on for about two years. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a two-year X Prize, and uh, we have had uh, three testing phases. We actually just came off the... uh, University of Hawaii's RV Kilo Moana uh, earlier today, about Ooh. three hours ago, um, which was the last phase of the testing. So uh, it's about two year prize. So the uh, the Ocean Health X Prize, can you give us just a uh, sense of what is it that the X Prize is looking at helping to create? I, I know it's something about ocean acidification and and pH levels. 
can you give us a summary of what it is that the XPRIZE is, is trying to uh, yeah. accomplish? Sure. Um, so we have been testing pH sensors um, to detect ocean acidification. And uh, the the challenge that we are facing is we know it's going on in the oceans, but we do not have the technology and the instrumentation to be able to accurately measure pH uh, in the deep water especially and also in the coastal waters, which are two big areas of mm-hmm. the uh, of the ocean environment. So the reason we know it's going on is because we go out on vessels and take water samples and measure those. And, um, and so it would be great to have these instruments out there to do that continuously. So in many cases uh, with an XPRIZE, it's a matter of scale, which is to say, for example, the Kilimuana that you were on earlier today, the vessel goes to Station Aloha, a, a long ocean time series where you can observe conditions in the ocean, including ocean acidification, pH levels. But that's one place, one vessel with a team there. And what you're looking for is to be able to have this information for the entire ocean at all depths all around the world. So exactly. that's what you're trying to get uh, technologies to come up with. So you were testing some of the finalists. How many finalists and what did that testing involve? We were testing five teams um, and uh, actually each day we set a new record for uh, the depth that these entries were tested to Mm. Um, and um, they were tested for obviously for their ability to measure pH um, both at specific depths but also as we went up and down in the water column and we were actually at uh, the Hawaii Ocean Time Series uh, station, Station Aloha. Mm-hmm. Um, we tested them down to 3,000 meters, which is further than uh, most pH sensors have ever gone. So mm. far, we only know of one other that can go down to those depths. So six days ago, the world had one, and now it has uh, tested five. So how will you sort of determine the winner of this uh, challenge? Because... I, I, it sounds like you're looking at sort of the most resilient uh, pH sensor that could go at whatever depth, the, the furthest that they could go. What are some of the other criteria that you're using as, as uh, for judging? Sure. So um, our judging panel will be looking for accuracy, uh, for the precision of the sensor, how easy it is to use. Um, and then as part of the overall competition, they were also looking at how affordable the entries have been mm-hmm. because, you know, that's another issue is can you can people afford to purchase these uh, mm-hmm. pieces of instrumentation, if especially if we want them all over the world on moorings and um, on AUVs and, and on buoys and yeah. stuff, yeah. So this is this was the final test, though. It sounds like that um, there was previous rounds of tests that might have been a, uh, not quite as environmentally challenging as what you did just this just recently? Yeah, that's right. We started off uh, in Monterey Bay at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute where we did very uh, accurate lab trials, uh, and we also tested them in their uh, tank for about two months to assess them for stability. Because if you put an instrument out for a period of time, it tends to drift. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we moved on to Seattle Aquarium, where we tested them for precision and stability again. Um, and that was in a coastal environment, so that was Puget Sound. So they were exposed to all sorts of gunk and whatever there mm-hmm. is in Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. Um and then we came here to test them in the deep. Now, I'm curious, uh, maybe you can give us a little sense of, of who some of these uh, five teams are. Uh, do they have originally a lot of experience doing deep ocean sensors? And what sort of qualifies them to be in this contest? 
Sure. Um, so three of the teams have had some experience in doing um, oceanography, including deep ocean sensors. Um, however, none of the entries that we tested had been down to uh, beyond 2,000 meters. So it was new for, the, for all of them. Um, and then the other two teams, uh, they were prototype sensors. One was a team from Japan, which had a fantastic hybrid sensor. So there are multiple ways of measuring pH in the ocean. And they used a combination of two of them so that they could get both accuracy and uh, fast measurements, which is what you need. Now, we've talked about the X Prize. I think a natural question is, what is the prize and when will it be announced? When will the winner be announced? It's a $2 million prize, uh, $1 million for the most uh, accurate sensor and $1 million for the most affordable sensor that reaches a certain level of accuracy. And we will have the announcement and the final award ceremony in July, on July 20th of well, this year. We'll certainly be covering that. I, before we let you go, though, um, I think we on our show talk a lot about ocean conditions, ocean acidification being one of them, acidification, uh, coral bleaching being a concern, certainly both in environmental terms and tur- as well as tourism terms and economic. Um, what uh, What is it that the Wendy Schmidt Ocean X Prize, uh, in terms of the problem, the scope of it, uh, what is the threat that we're trying to solve with these sensors? Well, we're actually trying to assess the condition of ocean acidification. How uh, how much is there? How rapidly is it changing? Where is it changing? You mentioned coral reefs. Um, how, how much is it changing on coral reefs? And like I said earlier, we have spot measurements and very, very, very few of those. So we would like to have more uh, improved measurements. And then the real grand challenge is the challenge of doing any kind of observations in the ocean. So some of the uh, innovations that have come out from this prize can be applied to other ocean technologies. Um, so that that's uh, an extra benefit for Sounds this. good. Where can we keep up on what's happening with uh, the uh, Ocean Health X Prize? Yeah, you can follow us at um, oceanhealth.xprize.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's our website. Or you can follow us on Twitter at XPRIZE, uh, hashtag Team Ocean. Sounds good. Very nice. And maybe we'll have you come back on the show later on uh, and talk more about XPRIZE. I'd love to. Oh, good. Thank you so much for having well, me Thanks, Jodica, for joining us. Thank you. And now joining us is uh, Jonas uh, Vibel from the Energy Accelerator. And we also have uh, Blake uh, Barris on the line. And they're going to tell us about Reboot the Commute, which is coming up this coming weekend. Jonas and Blake, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Aloha. So, uh, Jonas, you're here. You're telling you're you've been working on this feverishly. The reboot, the commute. I was at a warm up event uh, about a week ago, and I guess for all our listeners, what is reboot the commute, and what do you want to achieve with this? So, so uh, with the reboot co- commute, we are looking for innovation to that helps solve some of Hawaii's most pressing transportation problems, mm-hmm. and we want to invite. Uh, people with the skills to develop these types of ideas and people with the knowledge to formulate them and kind of bring them together and uh, synthesize good solutions for Hawaii through this. Now, we love hackathons and contests, as we mentioned, as well as with the X Prize, using competition as one way to spur innovation, creative thinking on the spot, you know, uh, mm-hmm. creativity. Um, but And it's described as an app challenge. Uh, is it an event that is primarily directed at app developers or will there be a place for just civil engineers or even photographers or even just people who really like to do graphic design for example there's a place for everyone 
we have um, an event where uh, 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 we will kick it off with the speakers. Um, so we have a very interesting set of speakers um, coming and uh, they will provide a little bit of background on what uh, type of problems we see here in Honolulu in terms of transportation. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after that, teams will form uh, with the developers and uh, people with the uh, transportation knowledge and people who have a passion for, for solving these types of problems. Mm-hmm. Now, Blake, uh, you guys are in San Francisco, Seattle. Where are you at right now? I'm I'm actually at HP's headquarters here in Silicon Valley at a Connected Car event this evening. Okay, and so just broke out to uh, join you guys for a few minutes. Okay, so Connected Car, I mean, is that related to Reboot the Commute in any way? Absolutely. This is about you know, kind of the future of Connected Car. There's a whole series of panelists here from the automakers and other, other companies in the Bay Area. And the idea is that you know, the cars on the roads today, including the cars running the roads of Hawaii, are creating a lot of problems. They create congestion. They create uh, emissions and a lot of frustration for the citizens trying to get from point A to point B, not to mention goods trying to flow through the, um, through the, uh, the cities. Mm-hmm. So the idea of connected cars is connected them in a way that could alleviate some of those problems and make the rides, you know, you know, the, the transportation more efficient, uh, more viable, and maybe more, more sustainable. Now, Blake, that, I, yeah. um, I know that uh, transportation is a hot-button issue probably in any community, but it sounds like you're well aware of how it is here in Honolulu. You know, we, uh, we are – proud is not the right word, but we are well aware <laughs> of our standing in terms of having bad congestion. But there's also yeah. other ideas, you know, connected cars being key, uh, car sharing, um, ride sharing and things, sometimes um, good, sometimes bad in the headlines. When you put together this uh, app hackathon, Reboot the Commute, um, I would imagine connected cars are a part of that. But how – broad uh, umbrella are you putting over um, kind of innovative ideas that people could come up with, even if, would it be something like a, a car-to-go car-sharing network or a way to hack bus passes to work better with integrating with some of these services? It's all the above. It's really a multimodal approach. If you talk to the big automakers like BMW, they talk about the multimodal future. It's the way you use anything from a skateboard to a bicycle to a shared ride to an Uber to your own car or some delivery vehicle making all that stuff work together. And you can only do it through the application of IT and communication networks. That's where the connected piece comes in. So and we're part of that, that solution. But all those ideas and all those solutions, the idea with the hackathon, as you well know, is to get all those different people's, people in the room and all those different skill sets and approaches and come up with innovative new ideas. So, Blake, you guys are kind of taking this around the country, and your next stop is going to be here next uh, week, uh, next, this coming weekend, in fact. Uh, can you give our listeners a sense of what this event will how it will unfold, and what you expect to see as a result of this? So uh, it could be the next Uber that comes out of something like this, in my opinion. We're, we're running, uh, we've run something like something called iOS Dev Camp for the I, iPhone community. Mm-hmm. Or it's going on ninth year this year. We're, doing, we're introducing a transportation-connected car track there as well. And some really impressive companies have come out of that over the last you know, handful of years. You could see companies come out. You could see team formation. People get together, just the serendipity of being in the same room and talking about these pressing problems, they're, they're alerted to the, the opportunity to create solutions that could be scalable companies, you know, kind of born in ideas born in Hawaii that could scale, you know, to the mainland and, and globally. Mm-hmm. This happens with companies like Waze. We just heard a presentation here tonight talking about Waze born in Israel. I love they Waze. They came and took up, and, you know, took up root in, in Silicon Valley, and then mm-hmm. they became part of Google. Right? It's a huge success story. Yeah. Um, so that, I think that's the opportunity. It's coming to connect you, whether you're working in a big company or academia or, or you're a designer, 
come listen to these opportunities and kind of mingle and who knows what you might be, what ideas might spark. So uh, it could be anything from ideas, prototypes to actually companies that, you know, take on additional uh, mentoring from Energy Accelerator and the great crew of mentors they have there to, uh, you know, true funding and, and kind of next steps in company formation. So you mentioned the Energy Accelerator, Jonas. So, so what is Energy Accelerator's role in all of this? Energy Accelerator is one of the organizers of this event. And uh, from the Energy Accelerator side, um, we are a nonprofit late stage accelerators that looks for innovative companies in the energy field. And uh, one of these um, fields, of course, is transportation. So we're very interested in that. And uh, we uh, like to, we're very uh, keen to see uh, interesting ideas developed from this uh, event and also hopefully that they can go on and into one of our programs. Now, you mentioned late stage. I would imagine coming out of the you know, hackathon, this app challenge, and Hawaii hasn't really delved too deeply into the startup, but especially in the transportation arena. Uh, what if you have some potential early stage companies coming out of this? I mean, are you guys prepared to wrap your arms around them and bring them into the fold? Absolutely. So oh, okay. we, uh, we've um, set, set up this event so that um, they will, uh, the winners uh, beyond the, the prizes, they will get uh, business uh, coaching and by Jump School and um, also have a chance to present at uh, the Startup Paradise Demo Day, which you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. on the 29th. And uh, then they will have just enough time, we hope, to uh, develop uh, their ideas into a company for the Energy Accelerator's closing round now on uh, July 2nd. Well, so, uh, Blake, uh, you know, we're going to we're kind of running uh, up to the Mm -hmm. end of our uh, uh, segment here. Uh, Do you want to give us a sense of where people can find out more about the uh, uh, Reboot the Commute? Yeah, Reboot the Commute uh, on Challenge Post. They can search for it as well as on the HTDC website, htdc.org, right, uh, Jonas? And uh, maybe slash Reboot the Commute, but it's probably on the homepage as well. (laughs) Uh, But also as far as uh, kind of general mobility and connected car, you can search tags. And there is a global movement afoot of innovators joining this field, and the opportunity is now. I mean, this year, it was the talk of CES, mobility and urban – or urban mobility, rather – and sort of play how that plays in the smarter cities is the huge uh, future opportunity. I, so I totally agree. I would say if you're local, come out. And, of course, uh, Jonas, you know that uh, next week's show is going to be dedicated to Energy Accelerator and the uh, winners of the Reboot the Commute app challenge. So it'll be good to have you back. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, I can't wait to hear that show. Yeah, it sounds good. So thanks, Jonas, for joining us. And Blake as well. And Blake. All right. Thanks, and of course, See you Thanks. Too. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Roy Gal, Jessica Liu, and and they're both from IFA Institute for Astronomy, and by phone, of course, Mike uh, Bolte, and of course, uh, they're all. He's a member of the TMT International Observatory Board of Directors. We've been hearing a lot about the TMT, but we wanted to get deeper into the science of it. What are the capabilities of a thirty-meter ground-based optical telescope? We'd of course love to hear your questions as part of the conversation. You can call us at nine four one three six eight nine or toll-free from the neighbor islands eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. You can also tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. You're listening to BiteMarks Cafe. This week says you hails from Vermont with some syrupy sentimentality. 
Over the years, Ben & Jerry has also introduced scores of flavors, some of which succeeded, some melted away. Festivus. Festivus. That's a flavor. Alexander Graham Cracker. (laughs) Or Oatmeal Cookie Crunch. Alexander Graham Cracker. No. Really? That's Says You. Thursday at 4 p.m. Twenty years ago, the federal government spent $100 million in the part of Baltimore where Freddie Gray grew up. There was this expectation, there was this vision in people's heads. $100 million, creating jobs, will then change, transform neighborhoods. I'm Kai Rizdahl. That was then. We'll tell you about now next time on Marketplace from APS. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ferraro Choi, and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And Ryan, I'm Ryan Ozawa. And, of course, joining us today is Roy Gell and Jessica Liu. Roy is an assistant astronomer and outreach coordinator, and Jessica Liu is an assistant astronomer as well. Both are at the Institute for Astronomy. Mike, meanwhile, Volte uh, is joining us by phone. He's a professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and is a member of the TMT International Observatory Board of Directors. And, of course, what are the capabilities of the TMT beyond existing telescopes? We'd love to hear your questions and comments, and we're sticking to the science of TMT. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Welcome you all to Bite Marks Cafe. Nice to be back. Thanks for having us. Now, Roy, you're a regular here, so, uh, you know, I, I want to just start off by saying that it, whenever, uh, as a kid growing up, I've always looked to the skies, I've always pondered what's out there. In fact, to the extent where there was a, a um, sort of a vocational exam that uh, I had in high school. And I guess maybe because I was staring at the sky so often that, you know, what resulted in my, um, in my exam for that vocation was either to be an astronomer or the other thing that I was really interested in was plants. And of course, the other thing was to be a farmer. So <laughs> it was either be an astronomer or a farmer. But, you know, there isn't a night that goes by that I don't look up into the sky and just wonder what is all, what's out there. And I'm kind of curious, what is the 30-meter the telescope going to be able to enable us to do beyond what the current telescopes are now serving up? Well, that's a long list, and that's mm-hmm. why we need a couple of people with expertise in different fields to talk about all that. But the first thing is a bigger telescope is a bigger light bucket, a bigger eyeball. So it lets you see fainter objects, which means we can see things that are further away, things that are smaller, uh, things that are dimmer. So we're always uh, seeking those capabilities. Mm-hmm. The other thing that a bigger telescope lets you do is uh, see more detail in further away objects or separate out uh, two objects that are close together, such as a planet around a star or the details of a faraway galaxy, which might just look blurry in a smaller telescope. So uh, with those two capabilities, you can then pick any field of astronomy and start to think about what are the science things that you could do uh, for everything from planets around stars to the most distant galaxies and everything in between is affected by gaining those new capabilities. Now, uh, Jessica... 
when I took those vocational tests, as much as I like astronomy today, I think I was probably lined up to be a, a waste management engineer. <laughs> so I might not have a fuller, as full an understanding of what we're talking about. One of the things that I've always been curious about is we say that the TMT will be a optical ground-based telescope. But one of the things we talk about on our show quite a bit, and in fact, we the nickname of our show is Exoplanet Palooza because <laughs> there's always news, <laughs> That's right. is that we hear about space telescopes, the Hubble Space Telescope in space, and they say... From space, you can see things without dealing with atmospheric conditions. Or we hear about radio telescopes, where rather than a single facility, you have one in California, one in Chile, and one somewhere else. And those three points sort of form, a, I guess, a basis of a way to observe the skies. So when we're talking about these different methods of doing astronomy, uh, somehow, to me, a mirror, a bunch of mirrors in a large bowl is so classic and so steampunk. But is it still a relevant and cutting-edge way to do astronomy? It is, but that's largely because it's not just one smooth piece of glass anymore. And we figured out how to combat that turbulence of the atmosphere, this blurring effect that the Earth's atmosphere has, with something very special called adaptive optics. We can now correct all of that turbulence in the atmosphere and get close to what space telescopes deliver. Mm-hmm. But we'll never be able to launch a 30-meter telescope in space in, in my lifetime, likely. And yet we can build one here on the ground. And with this, plus adaptive optics, we can get to better than space Space so, so I'm curious, images. in terms of the 30-meter telescope, is there a 30-meter mirror that needs to get polished so that that's something that is you know, being housed? Uh, and where does the adaptive optics piece kind of roll into this? So the, uh, the main mirror, the primary mirror of the 30-meter telescope is actually not one mirror at all. It's made of many, many small mirrors, mm-hmm. and this builds on the same heritage of the Keck telescopes, which also is not one big mirror. It's many small mirrors. And all those mirrors have to work together. They get all aligned together to make, one, to make it look like one smooth big light bucket, as, mm-hmm. as Roy said. And the adaptive optics comes not from the primary mirror, but it's further down the chain after the photons bounce off the primary and the secondary and several other mirrors. Then they go into a special housing that has a very small but very fast deformable mirror that can deform on millisecond timescales and correct all of this turbulence and blurring from the atmosphere. And another component, I, I, I know that when you see pictures of the Keck telescope, there's this laser beam going into the sky creating an artificial star, a star which allows for that correction. Another thing that um, a lot of telescopes do or have is because because you talk about that ability to work at micrometer, nanometer scales, isn't there an instrument involved that is like at below zero or near zero in terms of temperature? Is that part of, of, of this technology as well? The infrared telescopes on the 30 meter, or the infrared instruments on the 30 meter telescope are all cryogenic. The detectors have to work very, very cold to work efficiently. And that may be what you're thinking of. Uh, mm, I see. Yeah. Now, we mentioned Keck, and Roy, although it's not uh, the, the 30 meter project specifically, and we do want to hear from Mike as well as about that from the, from the international astronomy perspective. But I did want to ask you because we uh, have seen a couple of astronomy press releases making headlines in astronomy circles around the world from the Keck just recently. Something about fuzzy galaxies, for example? Yeah, uh, that was not an IFA press release, so I don't know the exact (laughs) details. Uh, uh, But I think they're looking at galaxies that we call low surface brightness. So they're not really centrally concentrated. They're not really bright. They tend to be dominated actually by the matter we can't see, the dark matter. And so they're very interesting because they didn't make a lot of stars out of their gas, but there's stuff there, and they're very hard to see because... Um, they're very spread out, and uh, so they're challenging to find. So that's one of the kind of things you need a big telescope uh, uh, to find. Mm-hmm. Now, Mike, uh, Mike Bolte, uh, you're on the line here with us uh, 
from the uh, TMT International Observatory Board of Directors. I wanted to ask you, you know, 30 meters, I mean, that's probably uh, the largest uh, in the world. I mean, with uh, Jessica just mentioned, I mean, it's a, it's a composite of a whole bunch of mirrors that, that create this 30 meter. Is this, are we going to be seeing bigger telescopes in the future or is this pretty much, uh, are we at the, some physical limit? Yeah, well, we're not at any limits. Thank you for having me on the show. Yes. And hello to everyone, including my friends there, Roy and Jessica. Yeah, the Keck telescopes, well, let me back up. Uh, they used to make primary mirrors uh, for telescopes out of a single piece of glass. that had to be polished exquisitely well. You know, so on all scales, it has to be polished to a precision that's just a tiny fraction of the width of a human hair. And the problem is, as glass mirrors got bigger and bigger. They got heavier and heavier because after you do all that exquisite polishing, as you point the telescope around the sky, you don't want the mirror to deform under its own gravity. So you had to make those single glass mirrors stiffer and stiffer and stiffer, I mean thicker and thicker and thicker to maintain the same stiffness. Mm -hmm. So the Kecks, as was pointed out, were a big breakthrough in that instead of a single piece of glass, the Kecks have 36 individual hexagonal segments that fit very closely together. And you have to measure where one is with respect to the other along the edges and then correct that measurement based on that measurement if they're a little bit out and you run the whole thing under computer control. Mm. And everybody thought there's no way that could ever work. But in fact, the Keck telescopes have worked spectacularly. So, so one of the nice things about the Keck telescopes is you can imagine that that technology is what engineers call scalable. Right, right. You know, just put another set of segments around the outside, and all of a sudden you have a 12-meter telescope. Mm-hmm. And uh, as Jessica mentioned, we have 432 uh, segments in the 30-meter telescope. And going from 10 meters to 30 meters is a huge jump forward mm. because the light that you gather goes like the area of the mirror. So that goes up by a factor of nine. Now, Mike, you know, we also know that uh, there we, um, we've been following, in fact, even the site selection process for the 30-meter telescope. We were, uh, it came down to Chile and Hawaii, um, and Chile is, in fact, the site of two other planned telescopes, which will be um, larger, I believe, in terms of the optical size of those telescopes. But one of the things that I think is, is notable is that those telescopes will be in Chile, and these telescope, this telescope, the TMT, is in Hawaii. So even when you talk about just the areas of the sky that will be covered, um, it's important to have that instrument, uh, instruments in both places correct? Uh, that's correct. So <clears throat> I'm not sure if, every, if this is obvious to everyone, but from any point on the earth, you see some part of the sky. And from the northern hemisphere, you see parts of the sky that people in the southern hemisphere can't see. So these extremely large telescopes, as they're called, one in the north and the two in the south, are complementary in terms of sky coverage. And there are different kinds of objects, some that you only see in the southern hemisphere, some that are special to the north, like M31, the Andromeda Nebula. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so uh, Mike, I mean, are there any other things that especially qualify uh, Mauna Kea for the 30-meter? Um, well, Mauna Kea is a great site uh, for its physical characteristics. You know, a tall mountain in the middle of the ocean, so you have nice laminar airflow from the trades that go over the top and don't become turbulent. So the as a window to the universe, Mauna Kea is certainly one of the one or two best places in the universe, I mean, on the surface of the Earth. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the other thing that's attractive to Mauna Kea for the partnership, so that includes Canada, uh, Japan, University of California, and Caltech, 
is we have other facilities up there. The Keck telescopes are there, uh, operated by UC and Caltech. The Subaru telescope, the 8-point-whatever-it-is, 2- or 4-meter telescope is up there. The Canadians have the Canada-France telescope. So you can imagine building very efficient science programs mm. uh, between that, that sort of ecology of telescopes up there. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one of the things that I've been impressed, uh, and I think there was, in fact, just news in the last couple of days that Canada uh, made their uh, uh, allocation and formally became part of the TMT uh, uh, group. Yeah. Um, yep. But another um, part of this that uh, we've been tracking is that these components, you're talking about very highly specialized components, Roy, uh, are not all, you know, they're being made from different places. Canada, in fact, is involved with the the housing of it. Uh, The mirrors are coming from a different place. I mean, what kind of a scope in terms of putting the pieces together for TMT are we talking about? Well, that's uh, how all the observatories that are partnerships operate. It's not that uh, everyone just contributes uh, money and that's it. Everyone contributes a part of the telescope or a part of the instrumentation. It's a real team effort. Um, just like when you build a house, a contractor comes and has a plumber and has a electrician and has a roofer. We have uh, groups working uh, in different countries that are building the structure that supports the telescope, the enclosure, the mirrors themselves. And uh, so they're part of their funding of the telescope is internal in the sense that they're going to use those funds to develop those technologies in-house. And so it uh, actually benefits all of the partners to grow their technological sectors, and then it all comes together here in Hawaii, and we end up being able to use it and uh, employ staff there who uh, end up uh, using and uh, running and maintaining these facilities. Mm-hmm. And the same is true for the science. It's hard for any one scientist to imagine all of the amazing things that TMT will be able to do. And so you need the specialties in exoplanets and supermassive black holes and the earliest, youngest galaxies. You need different people with different types of imagination for understanding what kind of science we could do and what kind of special instruments we should build for TMT now and in the future. Well, I, I did want to talk about some of these specific scientific applications. We did a show a few years ago on dark matter, which I thought was going to be completely inaccessible and boggle my mind, you know, my waste management engineering mind. But it turned out to be really insightful and fascinating. Um, and what we're... What you're saying is that an instrument like the TMT would be able to take what we know about that and take us generations further in terms of, of what we know. So uh, specifically in terms of application, can you speak to what dark energy insights we might look forward to? Well, I can tell you one for dark matter. Uh, TMT, with its exquisite resolution, will allow us to measure the positions and motions of not just nearby stars, but even nearby galaxies outside of our own galaxy. Those galaxies' motions are completely dominated by dark matter. And they're moving because of the dark matter potential well that they're sitting in. If we can measure their motions, we can then learn about the dark matter as a result and hopefully get a little bit of a clue about what this mysterious dark matter actually is. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that uh, I, I'm, I'm often curious about is, you know, with the, the larger light capturing capability and us being able to see closer and closer to the Big Bang event, and us maybe perhaps understanding what the early galaxy formation or universe formation was like. I mean, what what do you see perhaps learning as a result of some of the information that might come out of TMT about our early universe? So one of the big things is pushing back to the very earliest galaxies that formed. And what happens in the Big Bang is that uh, after the Big Bang and galaxies form, the light from the galaxies uh, ionizes the atoms in the mm-hmm. universe And that's a period of time where right now we have a real challenge to look back and see the galaxies at that very uh, early epoch. We have a very, very few galaxies, the most massive ones, which are very atypical. 
um, that we've seen with the, the largest telescopes we have today. But with TMT, we'll be able to see the typical galaxy and see what it's like uh, in the early universe and see if it matches our theories of how galaxies form. Already our theories are challenged because we see that there are galaxies that look like they have pretty old evolved stars in them pretty early in the universe. So the question is, how do you take the gas that's there early in the universe and make stars so quickly that you can make an oldish, mature-looking galaxy after just a billion years? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so we'll be able to look into that first billion years of uh, the formation of galaxies and see what's going on that lets that happen. Now, Roy, this may be an unfair question, but when you talk about things that help us rethink what we believe about our universe and our galaxies and our solar system. You know, the only examples I can come up with right now are like, well, you know, now that we redefine and understand how planetary systems work, maybe Pluto is not a planet. It's a dwarf planet or something. Um, Now we're learning more about how galaxies form by looking further off into space toward the edge of our universe. Um, Can you think of uh, an insight that that really sticks in your mind in terms of things that we thought about, even our nearest neighborhood, that uh, astronomy like this has been able to help us with. Like you're talking about ages of stars and things like that. Is that relevant to our our local zip code here in space? Well, I think uh, one has been how did our solar system form? When we think about how solar systems formed, until we saw solar systems around other stars, we had a theory of how ours formed. We have the rocky planets on the inside and the gaseous planets on the outside. So we thought, well... That's our one example. That's how they all must be. It's always a bad way to go, but it's the only (laughs) one we had. Mm -hmm. The first solar system that was discovered outside our own has a big gassy planet close to its host star. So immediately you can take every theory you had that explained our solar system but couldn't explain that Mm. and throw it out the toilet. So Mm -hmm. um, I think we are often challenged with that. I mean, a further away example is the uh, accelerating expansion of the universe where astronomers were sure that the universe was in a slowing expansion and... Like all good scientists, we have to be willing to take what we thought was right and and put it aside when the data tells us it's wrong. And so there, too, we were confronted with the fact that what we felt thought was the right physical theory was literally the opposite of what the data told us was true. So we never know with these new instruments and new technologies what it is we're going to turn upside down on its head, but it's sure to be a fun and interesting ride when, mm. when no. we do. Now, Mike, uh, you know, we had a, we've got a question coming in from Twitter, and I wanted to maybe throw this out to you because it's not it's not a... A complex question, but I'm, I'm I'm sure you've considered it as a as a place for choosing where the TMT goes. But you know, with Vogue, one of our constant sort of nemesis in our atmosphere, does Vogue present any problem with any of the telescopes up on Mauna Kea? Uh, that's a, an excellent question because they can both, you know, obscure the sky if that comes through. Plus, the the surfaces of all these uh, mirrors have uh, very special coatings on them. And you don't like to have any sorts of uh, chemicals get up there. But typically the VOG is running down below the level of the top of the summit. This is one of the reasons why Mauna Kea is such a nice site. Is it's high, and it's above you know, many things. Often you go up there, and you look out and see this inc- incredible uh, expanse of clouds below the summit. It's a beautiful sight. Mm-hmm. And that, that often happens with the VOG, too. And the other thing is it's just far enough up the mountain that it typically doesn't get that far up island. Excellent. Good question, though. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, no, I, that's good. So we actually want to talk a little bit more about this uh, detailed science case that just came out 
the uh, 2015, which is uh, uh, actually on the uh, TMT website. And we want to get all of our experts here to give us the executive summary because it's like 200 pages. Pretty dense But document. before we go to that, we'll take a short break and we'll continue our conversation with Roy Gal, Jessica Liu, and Mike Bolte about the science behind the TMT. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And as Civil Beat just did, you can also reach us on Twitter. This is Bite Marks Cafe. On the next morning edition, a political fight over banks and wealth, and a historic fight between a famous artist and his wealthy patron. Leyland had received letters from Whistler talking about the gorgeous surprise that Whistler was preparing. It was an artwork his patron considered so surprising he didn't want to pay for it. Find out how James Whistler got his revenge on the next morning edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings from 5 to 8.30 on HPR One. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Linda Graham, author of Bouncing Back. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about rewiring your brain for resilience and well-being. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Roy Gal, Jessica Liu, and Mike Bolte about the science behind the 30-meter telescope. And, of course, you can give us a call here. The number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, Ryan, you had a pretty good question about the, the sort of the international scope of the 30-meter telescope, and maybe we can pose that to, uh, to Mike. Sure, Mike. Actually, it sounds like a good question for you. I know that uh, one of the aspects of astronomy is that it is not, you know, like any uh, serious science, it's expensive. And we've, we've been tracking the history of the TMT and similar projects. There was something called the Decadal Survey, sort of like a grand setting of priorities in terms of what types of science are worthwhile investing in. And with the TMT specifically, we're seeing investments from Japan, from from Canada. I mean, when we say investment, we're not. it's not like it's a, a stock market portfolio or anything. It's sort of like investing in a, a National Science Foundation to do good works. Um, where do you, How would you describe where the TMT project fits into the global uh, view of advancing astronomy? Oh, well, I like that aspect of the TMT. So as you pointed out, the partners, in addition to UC and Caltech, are the countries of Canada, Japan, China, and India. And Japan has a pretty well-developed uh, astronomy research program in its country. They do all kinds of great stuff. They build things like the Subaru Telescope. China and India don't have quite that history, and they're looking at this as an opportunity to really jump sort of right to the forefront, both in designing the high-technology aspects of telescopes, instrumentation, adaptive optics, and getting their scientists participating right at the forefront uh, through access to a forefront facility. And I personally have enjoyed that part of the project very much, the internationalization, if you will. 
you know the this internationalization i mean i think monakea and and the astronomy community has really uh boosted hawaii's sort of presence in in this uh scientific community i mean i kind of almost liken it to the uh, hadron collider in in um you know in europe one, yeah. yeah and and how that has been something that has pushed the boundaries of our understanding of of uh, quantum physics and and this is basically doing the same thing in astronomy and that, you know, partially it's driven by the fact that these facilities get ever more expensive. And putting together consortia of uh, institutions or countries to build them, that helps bring all the resources you need in. Plus, they're complicated, as Jessica said. So it's nice to have all the expertise that the different uh, partners bring to the, bring to the table also. Mm-hmm. Now, I was uh, checking out the uh, TMT website, and, and they're uh, on the uh, front page is an announcement about the detailed science case 2015. Jessica, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, I mean, I know it's a long <laughs> article, long uh, a piece that has been developed over time. Uh, for us uh, lay people, I mean, what is it that uh, this detailed science case is, is uh, basically telling us? What is the executive summary that you can provide to us? Well, the remarkable things is the hundreds, possibly even up, up to a thousand scientists that have contributed ideas to this detailed science case for mm-hmm. how they might envision TMT being used in the mid-2020s when it finally uh, is ready to operate. And it ranges all the way from things in our nearby solar system, in our own solar system, watching asteroids, studying asteroids, studying the outer planets, moons around those outer planets, dwarf dwarf planets, all the way to, as Roy said, the furthest back galaxies. And um, I helped with the portion that's all about star and planet formation. And we're trying to understand how stars are born, not just like our own sun in our own solar neighborhood, but in very extreme environments that are really, really different from our own local neighborhood. That's mm-hmm. one aspect of that's in the detailed science case. You know, like we uh, had mentioned earlier, we like to sort of uh, call our show Exoplanet Palooza. And what we're seeing is that there's so much more information about solar systems and planets revolving around suns that are you know, no further away than, I think, what, 21 light years away or something, you know, very, very near. Uh, how would the TMT sort of contribute to that body of knowledge? So the TMT finally gets us the capability of being able to directly image planets in habitable zones around uh, some of the nearby stars. Uh, they would be what we call super Earth, so somewhat bigger than Earth, but still rocky planets that could conceivably host life. And they don't just, it doesn't just let us take a picture by uh, being able to contrast between the very dim planet and the very bright star, which is why you need a big telescope with this high resolution. Mm-hmm. We were just doing the math outside before. Uh, it's literally the equivalent of a firefly next to a lighthouse. So you have to be able to see that tiny firefly right next to the lighthouse. And with the resolution of TMT and adaptive optics, you can do this. And then you can make measurements about that firefly, which is the planet, and see if its atmosphere has signatures of life existing on that planet. So that is a down-the-road capability, but TMT will have that uh, as the instruments uh, get uh, use newer and newer technology. So I think that could be potentially, you know, like game-changing to humanity, just as we learned that there are planets around other stars all throughout the galaxy. Right. If we start to learn that there's habitable planets or that they have signs of life all over the place, I think that really should change our mindset about our place in the universe. Mm-hmm. So I like what you said about finally being able to directly image, because although we cover exoplanet discoveries, there are hundreds documented. Documented is a strong word in the sense <laughs> that we're inferring that they exist by the light changes of the planet passing in front of the star, the wobble of the star's gravitational field. Like, it's not to the point where we have a, an instrument that can 
effectively, like you said, take a picture of one of these these planets. And so that's what this instrument will do. There are instruments that are taking pictures of the planets, but these planets that they're taking pictures of are just the tip of the iceberg. They're the most massive. They're Jupiters or more massive than Jupiter, and they're far out in their solar system. Uh, and we're only able to glean a little bit of information about their atmospheres. So TMT just lets us push in closer to the star into this region where we think life might be able to form or li liquid water can exist on the surfaces. Mm -hmm. Now, we got another uh, uh, question from Twitter, and this is more of a, a basic question, but how exactly does adaptive optics work? I mean, you know, from a basic level, there is some control that the, uh, let's say, a system might have to adjust for, let's say, turbulent turbulence or turbulations in the in the atmosphere but uh, what exactly does it do i mean how 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 can you translate that into like a 3d uh let's say filter of yep. what the sky looks like well i like to think of it in the following way imagine you have starlight it's come for thousands and thousands of light years and that light that comes in right above the earth's atmosphere is a flat plane wave surface it's, imagine like a flat piece of paper and as it passes through the Earth's atmosphere, that flat piece of paper is getting crinkled up and deformed. Mm -hmm. And that's all because of the Earth's turbulent atmosphere, a little bit like looking at a penny at the bottom of a river, a moving, flowing river. Our atmosphere is a flow, a turbulent flow. That, that well, how, can you, how do you model that? I mean, ah. how, what is it that, what algorithms are you using to model that? And, and if it's being done sort of real time, doesn't it constantly change? Yeah, it does change. It changes on millisecond timescales. What we do is we look at a star, sometimes a real star, sometimes a fake laser guide star, mm -hmm. and we know that that star should be this flat wavefront. And we see all its crinkles, oh. we measure all its crinkles, and we use that deformable mirror that moves very fast to back out the crinkles and make the wavefront flat again. And that flat wavefront then turns into a very nice, crisp, clean image. So this is something that happens in real time. You have, say, an artificial guide star, and uh, the atmosphere deforms a little bit, and it gets a little dim. Then you know from that observation what it should be. You adjust your observations from the instrument to 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 compensate it, for that yeah. dimness right as it happens. I mean, so as the as the atmosphere is passing over and the the starlight is flickering, you reverse that flickering for your, your instrument. Yeah, it has to be real time. And what the lasers let us do is make that correction on an object that uh, so that we can apply it to an object that's far from the laser, that's a galaxy that's fuzzy that we wouldn't normally know how it looks, or it's far, it's not bright enough to normally do this very fast real-time correction. The lasers let us do that on anything in the sky. Mm -hmm. Normally, we would have to use a real natural star that's pretty bright. Well, that's a question from Nicholas. Thank you for that. Now, um, Roy, Jessica talked a little bit about this science case, and I decided to log on, tmt.org slash science dash case, and I don't feel qualified um, to dig into this document either. <laughs> so Jessica talked about how she contributed in the planetary uh, observation element of it. Is there anything that you wanted to call out in terms of what this says to the science community in terms of uh, what this project can accomplish? Yeah, so the way this uh, was written, actually, is by a group of many groups of astronomers with different specialties in different realms of astronomy. So Jessica and I were both on different ISDTs, Instrument Science Definition Teams, where we're trying to create the science cases that tell you how to build the cameras to help you answer those questions. And so uh, I worked on the one that was for the formation and evolution of galaxies. So, for instance, we look at galaxies far away, and we see that they look different than galaxies today. It's kind of like uh, digging in Earth in the geologic record, and we see that the bones of our ancestors look different than we do today, but it's so slow, that process, that we don't really see it in real time. So with TMT, we get to go digger, deeper and deeper into the astronomical or universal record, just like digging deeper into the fossil layers, and 
try to figure out what are the physical processes that make galaxies change the way they look, that uh, change whether they have hot stars or cool stars and uh, shut off the formation of stars or start the formation of stars, how black holes in galaxies are tied to regulating the sizes of galaxies. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's lots and lots of those kinds of questions that we can address. Now, Mike... um we're talking about an optical telescope, and I uh, obviously describe it in very layman terms. It's a big, giant mirror, and we're looking into the sky. But there are, as uh, Roy mentioned, there are different instruments that are attached to this uh, this mirror. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about some of them? I mean, is there radio? Is there infrared? Is there spectrography? I mean, what are some of the different things that will be pointed through this beautiful lens? Yeah, so one of the advantages of being able to catch lots of light with that gigantic mirror is... Uh, you can take that light you get from astronomical objects and split it up into a spectrum, you know, how much light you have at each of the different colors. And that's how astronomers and astrophysicists infer all the many things they do, how, how objects are moving in space, what their chemical composition is, all sorts of things. You need a spectrum. You need lots of light to take a spectrum because you're spreading that light out. So with the 30-meter telescope, our first so-called first light instruments, we have a visible light, so the light that our eyes are sensitive to, an optical multi-object spectrometer. You can observe up to 100 objects at a time. You can go very faint because it's a 30-meter telescope and observe some of these galaxies that we think are uh, at the edge of space-time. <laughs> I like to say because it's true. With the 30-meter telescope, we can look all the way back through to the beginning of time when the first stars and galaxies formed. That's what we're always been saying. So anyway, we have an optical multi-object spectrometer. We have an uh, instrument that's made to work in the infrared, the near-infrared, uh, at the so-called diffraction limit of the telescope. So we do this adaptive optics magic, and we get exquisitely sharp images, 12 times sharper than the Hubble Space Telescope okay. at mm -hmm. these wavelengths. And so we need an instrument that can both image things at that level. That's how we would, for example, see planets uh, directly orbiting other stars. And we can also take spectra of any objects that end up in the focal plane there. Now, that'll be an extremely powerful instrument because with that, we'll see things at a spatial scale that no human being has ever seen them before. Mm -hmm. You know, be Roy, really yeah, Roy, I like how he said 10, 12 times more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope because if, like, if you know of the astronomy picture of the day, I don't know how many of my computer desktops have been these mind-boggling images from the Hubble of distant galaxies. So already I'm thinking, well, the TMT, good, uh, good source for good desktop pictures of distant yeah. galaxies. Now, when he talked about the spectrography, um, that's also how we would talk about possibly finding life on other planets because you would look for the spectrographic signatures of oxygen or hydrogen or water. Yeah, that's right. Jessica, the, the expert in that, as a matter of fact. Uh, I, I don't know about expert, <laughs> but uh, yeah, with the spectra, we can look for specific molecules that we think might be signs of photosynthesis in an atmosphere of a planet, for instance, um, certain types of oxygen molecules that are only produced by that process, at least on Earth. But, you know, again, we may be limited only by our own imaginations and what we see in our own solar system. So we have to be ready for the unexpected as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of also interested in the fact that with the TMT, you can see further, you can see fainter. But how would it apply if you were looking at asteroids? And I know you mentioned asteroids. I mean, what, what would the TMT bring to that sort of uh, uh, capability? 
I think TMT, in terms of studying asteroids, might let us study their compositions. Again, with the Mm -hmm. spectrum, Mm -hmm. we can trace molecules. And I think most importantly, we can see uh, asteroids not just near to the Earth, but very far in the outer parts of our solar system, both asteroids and comets. And there's lots of interesting questions about how water came to Earth in the early solar system that we might be able to answer by being able to study large amounts, large numbers of asteroids with spectroscopy in all different parts of our current solar system. Roy, not to get too science fiction-y, but you know, when you talk about comets, we're, we think about movies, and we, we've also covered on this show sort of uh, the threats that comets and asteroids might, f- might pose to Earth. And certainly we've now sent instruments into space to, inter- to interact with uh, asteroids, for example. Uh, does the TMT help with those kind of applications? Is it looking further out, like to the Oort cloud and, and finding these asteroids even before they cross the border into our solar system? Well, uh, for finding asteroids, what you really want to do is scan the sky, and that's where Institute for Astronomy projects like uh, PanStars and ATLAS are what you want. TMT will not be doing that, but what TMT will do is detailed follow-up of some of those objects. So characterizing asteroids and how they're built is really important if we want to deflect them. We currently don't know if most asteroids are rubble piles like loosely held clumps of rock or big solid rocks. Mm. And you want to treat those differently if you want to deflect them uh, from hitting Earth. So those kind of characterizations would be very important. I have one more science case I thought I'd bring up, which is the uh, supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy. With TMT, we'll be able to see hundreds of stars orbiting around this black hole and potentially even test general relativity. So this is where astronomy and physics start to overlap. And we can see with this exquisite detail, all the individual stars will be able to see them, measure their motions, and make movies of the stars orbiting around the black hole and watch how those orbits change due to general relativity. So once the TMT gets built, I mean, where can we kind of keep up with the latest latest discoveries that might come as a result of it? Well, now you're talking about, you know, in the 2020s. So at the rate that social media is changing, Twitter and Facebook will all be gone. I hope I didn't just tank their stocks. <laughs> <No>! um, <laughs> and who knows, Snapchat uh, on TMT? I don't know. Uh, wait, so uh, I'm not going to make any predictions of the right places to uh, look for uh, the <laughs> news. But I'm sure TMT.org and <laughs> IFA.Hawaii.edu will have the information. Yeah, I was about to say, on an astronomical scale, though, Facebook might not be here forever, and we won't either. So, Well, by that time, I mean, maybe, maybe TMT will have its own accounts, right? I mean, be t- <laughs> we're getting very existential. <laughs> and there's also uh, Mauna Kea and TMT.org, is that correct? Dot org, yep. So we'll have all those links on our show notes at most bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, Roy Gal and Jessica Liu are assistant astronomers over at the Institute for Astronomy, and Mike Bolte is on the board of the TMT International Observatory, and we want to thank you all for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, Yeah, thank you very much. This is a fun show. I really had a good time. Yep. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll learn about the uh, winners of the Reboot the Commute app challenge. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Bitemarks. And you can please follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Explosions in the Sky and a song called Your Hand in Mine. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.